In a very real way, preparing for this morning's message has been a bit of a battle for me. It has been one that, quite frankly, I would have preferred. I sent someone a message this morning, actually, that was telling me they were praying for me and hoping things go smoothly, and I, they're a confidant of mine and a, and a great friend and also a father. And uh, I messaged back and said, you know, if it were up to me, the Sunday before sabbatical, I would essentially walk in and have a great sermon prepared and ready to where at the end of the day, I would tell everyone, Jesus loves you, hug each other, and let's just go on about our lives. That'd be easy, and, and I really thought that would be more fun um, in preparation and looking toward where the lectionary was taking us and the things that were going on. Um, me and the good Lord had a good conversation about it, and as is oftentimes the case, he won. Um, I don't know this morning that it will be a uh, butterflies and buttercups, just a, you know, everybody pat each other on the back. It's more the Word of God as it always has, uh, speaking to us in our situations and our lives and challenging us to, to be the Christ-like people that God called us to be. It is a story actually from the Old Testament, and it's one that's a pretty extensive amount of Scripture that I'll be reading throughout the morning. We're going to kind of follow the story, but if you'd like to follow along as well, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 1. Some of you remember two weeks ago, we talked about kind of the beginning stages of the main character of Exodus chapter 1. We're kind of fast-forwarding to the end of a man's life. It's the same individual. I'll ask you in a second if you can remember who we're talking about. An individual who began in his early years being kind of favored amongst his brothers. There being 12 to 13 actual children, but as you look at those children and uh, in the, the brothers, he was favored the most. He's the one that the brothers became so angry with him and jealous of him. They had the idea that they would just off him at first. After deciding not to just off him, as in kill him, uh, one of the brothers spoke up and said, let's, you know, let's throw him in this pit. And when they threw him off in this big hole, essentially, then they came up with another idea. We could just sell him into slavery and send him to Egypt, ultimately, is what they ended up doing. The part of the story that we read this past week was that really, or two weeks ago, was that really awkward interaction between he and his brothers when they were reunited. And their reuniting was under a little bit of stress and problem. <clears throat> the brothers had shown up back in Egypt because they were hoping to be able to do some maybe some bartering, trading, and making some arrangements because a great famine had begun to set in. And so they're showing up to make arrangements, and they get sent essentially to the office that would make the decision about whether or not they could have this arrangement with the Egyptians or not. And when they arrive in this office, there's a man who has a bit of trouble dealing with them. He seems to toy with them. He seems to, to be torn himself about how to deal with them because the reality is their younger brother that they had sold into slavery years and years ago is now the one who has risen to prominence and he's the one who decides essentially if they get food or not. It takes them a while and it takes the, the brother a while, but that brother eventually reveals himself to his other brothers, lets them know who he is, and he says this wild thing that God had appointed all of those things, that God had worked through all of those things things to save his family, to save his brothers and his father. What an incredible, incredible story. And so at the end of that, I ask you the question, who is the individual, the brother that got sold into slavery? What is his name? Joseph. You all remember from a couple of weeks ago the story. So what we're doing this morning is we're fast forwarding into Exodus chapter one. I'm actually going to begin in verse one because you're going to uh, follow these individuals and kind of see the, where the, the next chapter of the story is. We really just talked about the brothers being saved, but in that brothers being saved, 
it wasn't just the brothers. It's a lot of extended family. The, the greater nation of Israel, what would become that is the, the people we're talking about being saved in the midst of this. And so this morning we'll begin by reading Exodus chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. It says, These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Re- Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob, Jacob numbered 70 in all. I'll stop there. When you think about the numbers of those descending, I want you to look at this list of names. As a matter of fact, what, what groups kind of carried these names from this point forward? Anybody know the connection of these names as we study the people of Israel from that point forward? What were they ended up naming here? I mean, th- these names carried on in what? The names of tribes. Exactly right. So like, when you're looking at the people groups, you're looking at a, a group of people that moved, and it wasn't just them that came towards Egypt to find a bit of, a bit of place for food, comfort, and to survive this great famine that was taking place. You see, they moved in and so did so many others moving in and, and, and developed kind of their dependency upon the Egyptians during this. And it was a good thing in the great and early beginning stages of this. The math gets a little bit wild here. When I say math, you think with me for just a moment about the, the next few years. And when I say few, I probably should say more, next few hundred years. Because when you look at the story of Joseph going into Moses in the Exodus, you'll read different places. People work to try and come up with how many years is this. And so we're going to operate with a number that has kind of become the generalized understanding, like Joseph taking care of his brothers and inviting the other, what would be Israelites, the other people in, and people of that same people group anyway, inviting them in. You look forward into the story, and most people put somewhere between 275 to 300 years before Moses arrives on the scene, all right? 275, 300. I understand you're going to find something that says, Daniel, it's probably closer to 225. And somebody's going to say, Daniel, it's probably closer to 340. Okay, let's just use a round number kind of in the middle of about 300. Because when we look back at some of these dates, believe it or not, the Bible was not written so that you could go back and fact check every date. Okay? Not how the thing was written, but a lot of those things, you can go back and see where they line up fairly well. So we'll look from, say, Joseph until the time of Moses being born is somewhere around 300 years. Now, one of the things, and better yet, we'll make it a little bit sim- more simple math, we'll say that it was around 270 years. That'll make sense in just a moment. The reason I say 270 years is because if we look back at Jacob, which is the father of all of these gentlemen, we look back at his life, he had all of his children by the time he was 91, technically, but we're going to call it 90, just again, for simple math. So if you have a 90-year existence that, that provided 12 boys having their own children, 90 years creates these 12 boys, then how many 90-year groups do we have creating children in that 270 years? The math you're looking for here, some of you can pull out your phone, 270 divided by 90 is what? Three exactly right. So let's do just a little bit of more simple math of like, how many people are we talking about growing? You know what I mean? Like, you're talking about at this point when the story was written, the number of, of descendants numbering around 70. Let's use a little bit more simple math. Jacob had 12 kids, right? So if Jacob had 12, let's cut that in half and say the average was six, all right? So if you have six kids and you go three generations, does anybody know what that adds up to be? Well, if six kids all have six kids, then that would be how many? 36? And if they have six more, how many more would that be? Getting a little bit difficult here. I'll go ahead and short you some change. 216, all right? You start adding these things together and you start realizing like, this creates a lot of people. So one person in this amount of time frame, there could be a well over 200 descendants underneath them. I mean, do the, you're talking about one person moving in and over this time frame creating 215, 220, 240 people that are alive or are existing because of them in the descendants as it continues to go down. Well, what happens when it's not just one person that moves in, but it's 10 people that moves 
100%. If 10 people do the same thing, it's not 216. How many is it? 2,160. If it's not 10 people, what if 100 people move and do the same thing? What if 1,000? What if 10,000 people move to Egypt during this great time of famine and they begin to have children during this time frame? You're at 2.16 million people. I'm going to tell you what, folks, some of you think about like, wow, that's wild. Let me fast forward a little bit further in the story. Most people estimate that when the, when the Israelites left Egypt, not the story we're talking about this morning, it's going further down the road. When the Israelites left Egypt, many people estimate low end 3 million, high end 4 million people. So we're not talking about ECN Sunday morning, our 90 people here on a Sunday morning leaving Egypt. We're talking about a nation of people leaving Egypt, okay? Like that sort of movement. And you're watching all of that take place. So what you need to see is during this time frame that's taking place between Joseph coming in and before Moses, you're watching as people, they're having kids, they're moving forward, their numbers are growing greater and greater and greater. In that relationship, at least in the steps that we're reading about right now, Joseph had established such a good relationship with the Egyptians and primarily Pharaoh that things were going very smoothly. They were looked upon not necessarily as uh, not fully lower class. There was a good working arrangement, some, some, some good uh, uh, relationship taking place there. But then it continues and the story moves on, right? I want you to go down to verse 6 and you'll read, Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly and increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. I think it'd be important this morning to acknowledge some folks maybe who were in our services this morning. When you think about Erin Church of the Nazarene, you probably have people that you're recognizing, you're used to seeing, folks that you may even look up to. As a matter of fact, in, in a lot of especially religious uh, situations and also when you study uh, people groups, they talk about things like matriarchs and patriarchs, which are the men and women that become kind of the pillars of their community. So here for just a moment, I'd like to ask you, who would you say are the matriarchs or patriarchs of Erin Church of the Nazarene? Those are typically the people who have been around a while. Those are the people who have served, who have led, who have proven themselves as leaders within our community. So I'm just asking you, when I say community, I mean our local, our ECN community. So amongst ECN, who would you say are the matriarchs and patriarchs? That means still living here today, and yet they are kind of the pillars of the church. Who would you name? David and Robin, Janet Miller, Don and Karen, think Tom and Teresa. Eh. Make sure they hear that. <laughs> Who else? Herb Gould. Yeah. I think there are numerous others. If we sat here, we would start seeing the pillars. We would see those who also, some of the, the names that we've mentioned as well, like there's been generational pillars. Uh, we'll go back to, to especially Tommy Mitchell married Teresa, but his father having pastored here for 37 and a half years. There's another level of patriarch, even though Brother Mitchell has passed away several years ago. Still another level within that, but I think the reason I'm bringing that up is it's necessary for us to see, if we go back to those pillars that preceded those that you just named, one of them would be Bob Mitchell. I, I'm not trying trying to be mean or, or speak ill, or, but it's just the nature of life. So far, so far, no one you know has escaped this life alive. So like, let's, let's just acknowledge that's the way life works. And at some point, the pillars that you all just named will not be current pillars. They will be former and they will be memories of pillars that were here. Okay, You fit into that, whether your name was listed or not, you still fit into this. You understand? Like, none of us are here forever. So there's this nature of things being handed, passed down. There's this thing of, of what's taking place. And when you're seeing 
seeing this story take place, you need to see what happens as they move forward. Verse 8 begins by saying, Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Folks, you need to recognize the transition that's taking place. It is what happens. New leadership comes in, things change, people begin to grow and mature. And in this portion of the story, though Joseph had worked to be that matriarch or that, that patriarch and pillar of his of his people, the one that was wise and experienced, the one who was trusted, when he gets older in his age and new leadership in Egypt comes about, the relationship begins to break down. The, 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 the good uh, naturedness of that, of that arrangement begins to break down. And it's because the, those who were, in many ways, those who were coming up in the Egyptian leadership did not have the same arrangement with Joseph, nor did they have arrangements with other people of the Israelites. You look forward and this new leader that comes to power says in verse 9, look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built Python and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that that baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them again, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives even arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy, this is to all of them, every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Folks, sometimes you may think you live in hard times and then you read stories, especially biblical stories, and recognize we do not yet live in hard times. Amen? Not comparatively. I'm not saying that things aren't, you don't have some difficulties in your life and those sorts of things, but I'm just saying keeping things in perspective is oftentimes a very, very good thing to do. In this story while we're reading, you're recognizing that Joseph's arrangement and relationship with those earlier leaders, it was not filled in as the newer leadership was growing up. They didn't have the same relationship with the Egyptian leaders. They, they didn't have the same places of respect. They didn't have the same places of, of even responsibility. And in one of these parts of the story that we read, man, this is really bringing a, a great level of, of pressure and understanding in the nature of how things work. We've, we've heard this many, many times, and sometimes you've even experienced it on your own uh, existence. I think a great place to look back, you all know I'm a, I'm a big fan of high school. When I say sports, I'm going to say anything that involves competition, because it's not necessarily just in uh, playing the stereotypical baseball, football, basketball, volleyball, those sorts of things, but it's in anything that's based in competition. When you were in high school, if you were involved in a competition, every year what happens? Your seniors graduate, and those seniors leave, and then there's, a, there's kind of a chasm left behind, and you wait next year to see who's going to step up and fill those voids of leadership. And if you think the church is any different, you're sadly mistaken. You understand, like, there's a necessary place where I feel like we've we've grown, done a disservice to ourselves to see the matriarchs and patriarchs as something that is unattainable. And yet I would promise you this morning, if you ask any of the matriarchs and patriarchs that you named, and even those that you didn't name and you think of, they sat in seats, pews, and chairs just like you're sitting this morning. If you're in that younger guard, so to speak, those younger years, anywhere in, in the in the non-retired down. Most of the time we talk about uh, matriarchs and patriarchs. We 
talk about those that are kind of in that retirement age and beyond. So if you're underneath that, I'm talking to you this morning. Hear me say again, saints are made. They are not born. And there's a very strong reality that because the people who came after Joseph were not working diligently to maintain the same places of respect and responsibility, you just wonder how that relationship might have changed. What could have been different in their people group if the ones coming up behind were seeing themselves as needing to fill that void, needing to continue to maintain that place or maintain that those responsibilities, those relationships, those sorts of things. You're seeing a fallout that takes place. And what happens is when there's no relationship left between the Egyptians and the Israelites, you're seeing the Egyptians are looking at the Israelites with a different light. Not necessarily, not to say that they ever saw each other as comrades, but they begin to see each other as a threat. When the Egyptians see the Israelites, the Hebrews, as a, as a threat, what begins to happen? One of the greatest things that motivate and is one of the greatest temptations of man is the desire to maintain power and control. The desire to control and to, and to keep power is something that has destroyed men and women from the beginning. Ultimately, when you look back at the Garden of Eden, let's go back that far. What is it that Eve is the most tempted by? What, is, what does evil say to Eve? You will become, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll become what? You'll become like God, knowing. You understand? Like, it is that desire to be in control and to be in power that so often destroys people. And when you see people who will do whatever it takes to maintain control, I would begin by saying they do weird things, but the reality is they do horrific things. As much as you live, I'm going to make a, a statement of, of what I consider to be common understanding. And if it's not common understanding for you, then I'm, I'm up for having the discussion about why I, I, I feel so strongly about this. You have a posh world existence, okay? Your existence is very posh. It's very full. It's very easy compared to numerous other places in this world. It is not to say that you don't carry your own stresses and your own worries and your own concerns but there are not as many people in the circles that we live in, in the country we live in, that are quite literally scrapping together trying to eat tomorrow, okay? Trying to survive to see the next day. I know we have people in our country who are doing that, but I also recognize this is a very different system. With This is a system that has opportunities and places at least. I've been in countries where there are no opportunities and places. Many of you have been there before, and you have that beautiful perspective that we live a very posh existence. What I'm telling you this morning is you may not believe that humans can get to this place but I'm telling you, we have done it and we have done it again and we will do it again if we're not careful. When humans work to maintain power, what sorts of things do they do? Folks, we've even seen in small elements in our own country when tragedy strikes and people are worried about food and water, we turn back into animals in a hurry. I'm not trying to, to, to demean or de to, to, to demonize anyone. I'm just saying, look around and see what happens. We're not so far removed from this because in Egypt, if you want to maintain control of the Hebrews, what do you do? You rule over them with a heavy, heavy fist. And then when they continue to grow in number, what do you do to keep them from growing in number? Kill the babies. I'm sorry this morning that I didn't feel so led to walk in and just tell you Jesus loves you going about your life. Can we pause for that for just a moment? I'm sorry that we're not there. But when Egypt wants to destroy the Hebrews and keep them under wraps, kill the base, especially the boys, because the boys are the ones with the greatest potential and likelihood of overthrowing. So we have to make sure we keep them under wraps. Folks, this isn't the only place in the Bible that we kill the babies to control. Remember when Jesus was born? Okay. You think that's the last time it's happened in human history? Go back and read about what the Nazis did to children, marching them off by the thousands into gas chambers. Folks, come on. Recognize the evil that is possible when 
humans try with everything they have to control and to have power. It is a hugely, hugely destructive force. And you're watching what happens, folks, in this story. I'm telling you, human depravity knows no bounds when it comes to allowing evil to convince them to, to control and to have power over someone else. And that, 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 that's the greatest task of them is, to, is that, that level of power and control. Folks, they go as far as to say, this is the way we're going to restrict their numbers. We're going to ultimately have them kill themselves. You understand? Like, who do they first commission to take care of these boy babies that are being born? It's their own people. You know what I mean? And thank goodness, thank goodness for ornery women. Amen? Thank goodness for fiery women. You know what I mean? Some of you are raising young fiery women right now and you don't know what's going to happen. Let me give you this encouragement. It is fiery women who have saved us numerous times throughout the Bible. This is just another one. So all you got to do is point the fiery child, that young girl, point her in the right direction and she'll conquer the world. Amen? Absolutely so. It is because of women refusing to go along with their plan that this continues to move forward. I also want to acknowledge in the story, their refusal very easily could have been the end of their own lives because you can't just keep refusing for a long time. Eventually you're going to get called on the carpet and eventually they did and eventually they, they are blessed by God having families of their own eventually that God had mercy on them because of their refusal to participate in the killing of children. In the story as it continues to move forward, can you imagine for just a moment being a mother, having children in these days, knowing that your child had a, had a let's just say easy numbers, a 50-50 chance of being born a female and getting to live. It's not just the, the problems of having children and, and the nature of, of, of childbirth, but it's that no matter what I bring about, if it's a male, the, the Egyptians are going to try and kill my child. Can you imagine the, the, the pressure that comes with that? I would ask maybe this morning, what sorts of crazy ideas might you come up with to save your child? As a bit of a leading question, some of you know where this story goes, so I'll ask it again out loud and maybe you would answer as one of the Egyptian or one of the Hebrew women we're about to talk about, what might you do to save your child from dying at the hand of the Egyptians? How far would you go? Some of you know the story. What might you do? Some crazy idea like making a basket. Same word, by the way, in the old language for ark, which is a pretty neat thing. I might float my child in a basket amongst the reeds. That's what I might do. Great idea. Exodus chapter 2. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, mothers of boys, you would say amen. You know what this looks like. You've looked upon your child and be like, this is a fine son. I recognize that not all children are born looking pretty. Amen? Yeah, I know you're all chuckling because you've looked at maybe your own child or somebody else's and when you looked at, oh, that's a baby. You know, like one of those type moments. Now they all end up turning out great later on, but let's just acknowledge some of us look a little bit weird when we're first born. This mom, however, like every mom, looks at, every, looks at her child and says, this is a fine child. She hid him for three months. Easy to do when they're small and whimpery and there's not much noise to be had about them, but eventually they develop their lungs. Amen? Some of them even before three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. She then placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe and her attendants were walking along the river bank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to go get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? 
Yes, she answered, go. So the girl went and got to the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the, women took the, the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses saying, I drew him out of the water. Can you imagine for just a moment, a couple of places to be here. Number one, a mother who sets her baby in the reeds for her other child to watch over during the day so that this baby can be kept out in a way less likely to be found, less likely to be killed. You have to wonder, what's it like the first day when you drop off that child in a basket and go back home? When you go back to life, dropping that child off in a basket and thinking to yourself, I have no doubt that you have struggled through some difficult things in life, but I would imagine that none of us in this room have been in a place where we were so afraid that our government was going to kill our child that we were trying to hide them in Kentucky Lake out here during the daytime. You understand? Trying to find a shady place. And we commissioned one of our other children to go wash. Watch. Can you imagine what this is like? Even more so. Folks, I, I can't imagine being a young girl commissioned about watching this young boy float in the water. Can you imagine what happens when you're watching one casual day, just keeping an eye on the basket hidden in the reeds, and then you begin to see the royalty filing down to bathe for the day, and you're thinking to yourself, please be quiet. Please be quiet. Please, God, do not let this child make a noise. Can you imagine how, how your heart stops when you hear this woman point to one of her, hey, what's in the what's over in the weeds over here? What, what is that? And you're going, no. Oh, no. And then when they bring it over and she says it's a Hebrew child. Folks, it is not it is not a foreign thought to think about when the, when the commissioning has been given that all Hebrew babies are be thrown in the Nile. What might well have been normal to have seen floating in the Nile? These things get real, okay? These are real kids. And when you see royalty acknowledging this is a Hebrew child, the only solace that this girl finds is that when she sees the expression and the look on this person's face, she recognizes she's, she, she has compassion. She, she's not mad. She's not like, there's no off with his head. There's no throw him out into the river. Like, and so she means to think like immediately, like what, what in the, like, what can I do? And then, and then she's, she's thinking in her head of like, how, how can I, I know, ma'am, shall I go get someone to nurse him for you? Can you imagine what this step is like to get to this place? Because if you acknowledge that you see this child as well, what are you acknowledging to be a part of? Hiding babies. Understand like there is risk in all of this. You know what I mean? Like there, there's risk in all of this. You're acknowledging to be hiding babies. And yet she steps out and says, is there any, I can go get someone to nurse her. And of course, who is the logical person to get to go nurse this poor child who's in a basket? The Bible and the good Lord have a sense of humor sometimes. Amen. Like every now and then God does things. It's just like, oh my gracious, this, this is a movie story. You know, like this is the kind of thing that takes place. And so the mom ends up raising her son and she ends up taking care of him for those years moving forward. And folks, in this entire story, one, one more thought before we, before we wrap this up. Can you imagine for just a moment being the mom who puts her baby in the ark, in the basket, commissioning another child to watch, and you may be at home or you may be doing tasks, and all of a sudden the child commissioned to be at the water watching for your child comes flying back in the house going, Mom, Mom, what is your first thought? Game over. You understand? I don't know how mom doesn't erupt in tears. And then when, then when child says, they found him, folks, your heart stops. Pharaoh's daughter found him. My son is floating down the river. That's, that's where your mind goes. You ever had one of those times when your child was telling you a story and you're just like, get to the point. You know what I mean? Like, just say it. What is going on here? And then finally, she had pity on him, mom. She's looking for someone to nurse him. And I told him I could find someone. I cannot imagine the emotional flood taking place in this woman's heart over those seconds of how all of that information is being given to her and like how that's being explained and like all of the, the ups and downs. But at the end of the day, folks, you're reading the beginning of God delivering his people. 
that wild? You're reading the beginning of God delivering His people. And this is where this gets very, very difficult for us to navigate because we have to know how and when. Because there's a, there's a group of people right now who are, maybe you could call them anarchists, maybe you could call them deconstructionists, I don't know, but there are people out there that are just wanting to tear stuff down, they're just wanting to be rebellious, they're just wanting to fight against whatever, okay? And that's not what this teaches us. But you can't shy away from this story and recognizing when immorality was the norm in the situation. This woman's act of defiance against immorality paved the way for her people to be saved. You understand? When immorality was normal, in this instance, her act of defying that immoral commanded thing to do, her act of defying it was actually paving the way for the child to be born that would later come back and free her people from the, from the oppression of this Egyptian group of people. And folks, I, I want to be, again, I want to be careful here for just a second because I know there are people in the world today who are walking around and in some ways they're just waiting for someone to point them in the right direction to overthrow something. Okay, like we're in a world where people are waiting to overthrow. They're, they're, they're looking for things to tear down and deconstruct. They've done it to the church. They've done it to the education system. They've done it to the government. Those have been the things that have been the targets in the most recent history. And I'm not saying this morning that on my last day before sabbatical, I'm telling us all insurrection is the answer. Okay, it's not what I'm saying. But I am saying this in a world that we see continuing to do immoral things and accept immoral as normal. This is one of what I would consider numerous segments of time where God has found honor and has delivered people from the immorality in many ways, but has delivered them because people weren't willing to go along with the immoral acts that they were commanded to be a part of. We have been called by Christ and by God to be different from the world that we are living in, especially when the world we were living in not just flirts with the line, but stomps all over some immoral movement and some immoral action. There will be times to talk about maybe defining where those exact lines are. I don't know that in a Sunday morning in the time constraints that we have, that's a time to parse every one of those details out. But I think it's wise of us to recognize that there are, there are times to say, I will have no part of this. I will have no part of the immoral command that you've given. Maybe we will find ourselves years down the road, decades, centuries, a generation or two, where because we were willing to stand and not participate in the immoral, people come behind us and find freedom in a brand new promised land. Maybe because of our faithfulness and our willingness to be different and to, and to go against the immoral. 